So if you're reading through the New Testament with us, we've gone from the Gospel of Luke now into the Gospel of John. The window that we're reading this week is John chapter 3 to 7. And my plan tonight and Sunday is that we're going to look at back-to-back passages. Tonight we're going to look at John chapter 3 verse 1 to 15. And you are the advanced group, the, the gifted and talented class, the Wednesday night elite. So you will be double ready for Sunday when we pick up in verse 16 and we just carry on from where we leave off tonight. Tonight, I want to start this sermon in a way that I don't think I have ever started a sermon before in 15 some odd years of preaching. And I want to favorably quote a pope. Okay, I am a protesting Protestant, but this is Pope Gregory I. He's remembered by historians as Gregory the Great. And I feel okay quoting him as a protesting Protestant because John Calvin, the great reformer, said that Pope Gregory was the last good pope. So he looked back on church history and he said, for a while there was some good ones in there and the last good one, according to Calvin, was Pope Gregory. He lived from 540 to 604. And so we'll start with this quote from Gregory the Great. He says, Scripture is like a river. It's shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading, but it's deep enough there for the elephant to swim. That quote comes from Gregory's commentary on the book of Job. And if you've ever read the book of Job, you know that most of the book of Job feels like deep enough for the elephants to swim. There's some really challenging stuff in the book of Job. But the point Gregory was making in that commentary on Job, he's just talking about the Bible as a whole, and he's making the observation that there are some parts of Scripture that are very, very simple. They're very straightforward, that any child can understand them. And if you've ever tried to read the Bible cover to cover, and you found yourself in Chronicles, or you found yourself in Ezekiel, or you found yourself in the book of Hebrews, or the middle parts of Romans, you know, there's some parts of the Bible that are pretty deep waters that you really, really have to think about and study, and that really takes some careful, careful thought. And I'm sharing this quote with you to say, This is a a beautiful description, not just of the Bible as a whole, but also of the Gospel of John. In fact, if you buy commentaries on the Gospel of John, many Bible commentators, they don't quote Gregory. They attribute this quote to sometimes Spurgeon or sometimes St. Augustine or sometimes John Owen the Puritan. And it's a little bit different than the way Gregory has said it. But they make the point in the the commentary on John's gospel to say, this gospel is at once simple enough for a lamb to wade in and be safe and deep enough for the elephant to jump in and not touch the bottom. And that's a beautiful description of the gospel of John. Let me say one quick word about the author of this gospel. The author of the fourth gospel is John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve apostles, the author of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. Now I want to be completely honest with you. In the original, oldest, most ancient manuscripts that we have of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of the gospels have a title. 
None of the Gospels list an author. None of them come with a cover page that says this was the publication date and the printer and all that sort of stuff. They're all strictly anonymous. But very, very early in church history, titles got attached to each of these Gospels. And so very early on, the earliest church fathers begin to say, this is the gospel of Jesus according to Matthew. This is the gospel of Jesus according to Mark, according to Luke. And in the case of the fourth gospel, this is the gospel of Jesus according to John. There's all sorts of evidence that I could give you, internal and external, that says that the John I've listed here is the author. The one thing I'll mention is that John the Apostle personally mentored, we know this from church history, he personally mentored a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was martyred for his faith, but before that happened, he personally mentored a man named Irenaeus. And we have lots of things that Irenaeus wrote, and in the writings of Irenaeus, he says, this John is the author of the fourth gospel. So that's not ironclad, that's not inspired scripture, but that's a pretty tight chain from John to Polycarp to Irenaeus, and Irenaeus says this is the John who wrote this gospel. When you read the fourth gospel, some of you remember this because it hasn't been that long since we worked through the gospel of John on Sunday mornings, you always have to keep in the front of your mind, not the back, the front of your mind, John chapter 20 Verse 30 and 31, it's the thematic verse for the Gospel of John. I think I have it. We can throw it up on the screen. John 20, 30 to 31, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. If you were here when we went through the Gospel of John, you remember one of the things I told you regularly is that the Gospel of John uses the word believe almost 100 times. More than the rest of the New Testament combined. Almost every paragraph you read in the Gospel of John, it seems like this word comes up over and over and over again. And John says towards the end, He says, look, I have written these things about Jesus so that you would believe that he's the Christ and the Son of God. And when you believe those things about Jesus, you have life in Jesus. So that brings us to the big idea of our passage in John chapter 3. Very simple. You can see how the hymns we just sang are connected to this passage. Our salvation was accomplished by Jesus. It's applied by the Holy Spirit and can only be received through faith. Jesus accomplished our salvation. The Holy Spirit applies our salvation. And we receive the gift of salvation by faith. All of that in John chapter 3, verse 1 to 15. So, if your Bible's open... Follow along as I read. This is the Word of God, John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Jesus answered him, we just sang this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as your people tonight, we have uh, sung your praises. We've sung about the hope and the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, We're thankful that you sent Jesus to seek us and to save us. We've sang about the cross, Jesus dying in our place, dying as a sacrifice, We've sang about the necessity, the the essential truth that we must be born again to see your kingdom. We've sung about what it means to look to Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so, Lord, tonight as we think through this familiar story of Jesus and Nicodemus, we simply ask that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2021, my family took a vacation to Branson, Missouri. That picture on the left shows you what you feel like after about a week in Branson. You just feel cross-eyed and a little bit out of it. How many of you have been to Branson before? So we went to Branson. It was my first time going to Branson. We did all the, what I would assume are the normal uh, Branson things. The picture on the right uh, shows my family and Uh, My in-laws and one of Emma's friends eating. Anybody know where we're eating? Anybody? Lambert's, the throwed rolls, home of the throwed rolls. So we ate at Lambert's. Uh, We spent a day on the lake. We went to the original grandfather Bass Pro shop, uh, the very first Bass Pro right down the road. Uh, We went, I asked my kids at dinner, thinking about vacation, I said, what was your favorite part? Their favorite part was the Dolly Parton, used to be the Dixie Stampede, but you can't say Dixie anymore, so it's the Dolly Parton Stampede, and they do the horse show and the dinner and all that stuff, they loved that. We also went 
to the Sight and Sound Theater. How many of you have ever been to the Sight and Sound Theater to see one of these plays? This is a, an amazing, amazing place. I had heard about the Sight and Sound Theaters when we lived in Kentucky, and we were actually closer to the original Sight and Sound in Pennsylvania. People from Frankfurt would drive uh, east to Pennsylvania, and they would that was sort of the Branson of where they would go and they would see these plays. Uh, all sorts of biblical-themed, biblical topics uh, that they put on these incredible stage productions. Uh, just absolutely, the scale of it is hard to describe if you haven't been there. If you've been to like a local community theater and you've seen a play, it's really not comparable to what they do at the Sight and Sound Theater. It's just really, really incredible. So when we were there, they were doing the play Jesus. And so we went, and uh, we sat on the very top row, right in the middle. Uh, amazing sets, amazing music, amazing actors, just an incredible, incredible show. And I was fairly impressed uh, at the end of the performance. I had heard how great the quality of the Sight and Sound Productions was, and I thought it lived up to every every bit of hype that people had told me about. And at least with the Jesus play that we went to, I left thinking that was reasonably biblical. Uh, that's not always the case when somebody takes the Bible and puts it into a stage production or a movie or a TV miniseries or something like that. And I left thinking there wasn't much in there that I would really criticize and say, hey, that part was unbiblical. Now, it is a play... And this particular play is told through the lens or from the perspective of Nicodemus. And so it is a creative production and there is a bit of creative license taken in the play to tell the story through the lens of Nicodemus. And the reason I say there's some creative license taken is that when you read through the Bible, the Gospel of John is the only place you'll read about Nicodemus, he only shows up three places. There's really not a lot written about Nicodemus, and they sort of uh, embellish some stories and tell them as if maybe Nicodemus had a part in some of these stories. John chapter 3 is our passage. John chapter 7 is a story where the Sanhedrin is meeting, trying to decide what they're going to do with Jesus, and Nicodemus cautiously speaks up and defends Jesus. He doesn't really stick his neck out there, but he does speak up and he does offer some defense of Jesus and some critique of what the Sanhedrin is doing. Then you read about him one more time in John chapter 19. This is after Jesus has died. Nicodemus joins Joseph of Arimathea and he takes the body of Jesus and he prepares it for burial and they bury Jesus. What's interesting about these three references is that the reference in John 7 and the reference in John 19 both refer to John 3. So he's only mentioned three times, and the second two both call back to what happened in John 3, and they say, hey, this was the guy, the Nicodemus, as if there's lots of Nicodemuses in the story of John's gospel. In case you forgot, this is the guy who came to talk to Jesus at night. And so both of these references call back to our passage, John 3, almost as if John 3 is sort of the defining moment of how you and I are to think about this man named Nicodemus. So what I want us to do tonight is a little bit different than our sort of normal approach to a Bible passage. What I want to do, this is an interesting story. It's familiar to most of us. 
but there's some details in this story that you really need to make sure you're clear on. And so I just want to go through the story almost verse by verse, and I want to point out some key words and some key phrases so that you understand this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and then we'll talk about uh, lessons and truths and application and all that stuff at the end. So let's start in verse 1 and 2, John 3, and let's start with the word man. Man. John 3, 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Verse 2 says, this man came to Jesus by night. Now we've jumped into the Gospel of John in chapter 3. But if you had been reading from the beginning, you would have just come through the end of John 2. And in verse 23 of John 2, we read this. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. And literally what the text says there is, Jesus did not believe them. Many of them believed in Jesus. And I think John uses the word believe there with a bit of a wink. They believed in Jesus. And then he turns around immediately and he says, but Jesus literally did not believe in them. That's a strange thing to say. Why did Jesus not believe in them? Verse 24, because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Twice, the word man. Many of these people were, air quotes, believing in Jesus. But Jesus didn't believe in these people. Why? Because he knew what was in man. He did not need anyone to tell him what was in the heart of man. He knew what was in the heart of man. You understand, that is not a ringing endorsement of the people in Jerusalem at the Passover. And you understand that when John connects these stories, man, 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 four times that word shows up at the end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3. It is not a ringing endorsement of Nicodemus. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. Let me tell you about one such man. His name was Nicodemus. You also understand, if you've read the rest of the New Testament, this is not a ringing endorsement of us. Jesus knows what is in us. He knows our sin. In fact, I think it's safe to say that Jesus knows the depths of our sin better than our closest friends, better than our spouses, our children, or our parents, better than we ourselves know the depths of our sin. Jesus knows what is in man. He doesn't need anyone to bear witness to him about the heart of men and women. So you see the word man connecting these two stories. Secondly, let's talk about the word night. Verse 2 says that this man came to Jesus by night. If you read through the Gospel of John, you will find the word night six times. These are the references. I'm not going to talk about each of those. You can write them down. You can snap a picture. You can look those up later. You can search for the word night on your Bible app. You can find these. It's not, it's not complicated. This is what I want to say to you. In each of these references where John talks about night, 
It is literally night. Nicodemus literally came at night. Judas literally went out to betray Jesus at night. But each of these passages, each of these verses also has sort of a double meaning. Because there's always something not quite right going on when John talks about it being night. This is why I tell my daughter, nothing good happens after 10 o'clock. Just crime. Terrible things. It's night. That's biblical. It's in the Gospel of John. It's night. There's nothing good happening. Judas is betraying Jesus at night. Nicodemus is confused at night. You don't need to be out at night. When you read in John, there's always something a little bit off when he talks about night. And that's certainly the case with Nicodemus. Look at verse 2. And look how Nicodemus starts this conversation. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know. We know. I want to suggest to you that that is not the best way for a man, a woman, a human to approach the Lord Jesus Christ. Saying, let me tell you what I know. Let me tell you all of the things that I have figured out. You are talking to the creator of the cosmos. And you're trying to make sure that he knows that you know certain things. A lot of people try to approach Jesus this way. I'm not sure that it's the best way to approach Jesus. Jesus has a way, if you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and now you're into John, you know that Jesus has a way of turning conventional wisdom on its head. He's continually saying to people, look, you've heard it said this, but you know what? That's actually completely wrong, and it's this. Oh, you think this? Well, I got news for you. That's wrong. I don't care if your grandmother said it. I don't care if it's proverbial cultural wisdom. That's wrong. What you think you know isn't right. Jesus is constantly saying that to people. Now, when I caution you about this, I'm not saying that people can't know things. People can know things. In fact, I kind of made a list of some of you who are here in the room tonight, and I think all of you that are on my list actually showed up tonight. So this is pretty impressive. Some of you know some things. If I need to know something about Star Wars, Corey Spears, my guy. In fact, just tonight, I walked down the hall with my kids right past Corey, and he started whistling what's the death march, death march, whatever. And I thought, that's it, Star Wars, that's my guy. That's my guy. Look, if I need to know how to take a song in the hymn book and transpose it, to another key, I'm not calling any of you. It's not a hard decision. I'm calling Mark Dawson. Mark, I need to know this. Help me out. If somebody said to me, hey, I need help with information about some albums, do you know who you would call in this room? Richard Triplett. He knows. I guarantee you, he knows. You go to Richard and he can say, I know about albums, and you're not going to question him. You're going to say, absolutely. How many of you are dying to know about pipeline corrosion? Anybody? 
If you are, Chris Harrington's your guy. Pipeline corrosion. How about Kenyan politics? Anybody want to know about that? The different political parties, the debates, the elections. Chris Harrington's your guy. Who's your meat guy in the room? D. Wayne. He's got the answer, I guarantee you. Okay, this one's easy. What if you need a bad pun or a bad dad joke? Doug Hollowell. I looked at him and I pointed at him and you know what he did? <laughs> Doug's your guy. He knows it. He's probably thought about five puns since I said his name. <laughs> motorcycles. Ted Powell knows. He's got you covered on motorcycles. Push-up technique. Christian Akins. Classic cars. Afton. TCU Athletics, Sam Eaton. I mean, you get the idea. There, we know things. People know things. We know lots of things. What I'm saying to you is when it comes to Jesus and it comes to spirituality and it comes to religion, maybe it's not the best way to approach Almighty God leading with, hey, I know this. Maybe it's not the best posture as you approach Jesus Christ. Maybe a better approach would be to come and to come as a disciple, literally a learner, and to say, you know, and I'm here to learn from you. I'm not here to tell you everything that I know, but I'm here to learn from what you know. I can tell you this. I've talked to a lot of people since I've been a pastor about a lot of different spiritual, theological, Bible-type things. And a lot of people accidentally, unintentionally, they don't even realize they're doing it, they sound just like Nicodemus. And they start the whole discussion saying, well, I know this, and then they go on to X, Y, and Z based on this. And I just say, wait a minute. The this that you think you know I'm not sure that's right. Maybe a, a better approach would be to come humbly and to submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word rather than coming with all the things that we know. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 7. Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He says it again in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The Greek word here is anothen. Okay, it's an adverb. Uh, prepositions and adverbs in Greek are slippery things. They have a lot of different meanings. They can be translated a lot of different ways. And you usually look at the context to figure out what the best translation is. Most English translations, when it comes to this word anothen in this passage, they go with again. You must be born again. An equally valid translation would be Jesus saying, you must be born from above. And one of the things that you see in the Gospel of John as you read through the fourth Gospel is that John uses a lot of words where you're sort of left scratching your head saying, do you mean this or this? And the answer is yes, both, both and, not either or, both and. 
And I think this is one of those places where John has picked a very specific word and what he's saying, what Jesus is saying, and John's recording this is, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again, meaning a second time. That gives rise to Nicodemus saying, wait a minute, I've been born once, how am I going to be born again? But he's also saying you must be born from above. And if you've read the first two chapters in John, you've seen this idea already in John chapter 1. Right in the middle of John's prologue, John 1.12, it says, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children. Children are born. How does one become a child of God? Verse 13, John chapter 1. They're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. They are born of God. God. You cannot manufacture this new birth. Only God can cause the new birth. In John 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. This gives rise to Nicodemus with his well-known, well-remembered middle school boy statement. Are you saying I need to enter my mother's womb? A second time. And it's such a preposterous thing to say. It's such a a gotcha type thing to say. It's such a, a cutesy... Of course Jesus is not saying that. And Nicodemus is a bit stumped. And he's come with the attitude of, we know. We know. We know. And Jesus throws him one curveball. And all of a sudden there's a bit of defensiveness here. And he pipes up with this nonsense about... How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus follows with verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I started to go down the road of all the different theories, explanations, hypotheses for what Jesus means when he says born of water and born of spirit. There's a lot of them. Theologians have spilled a lot of ink trying to figure out what's the contrast here? What does it mean to be born of water? What does it mean to be born of spirit? There's some fantastic theories. I think most of them ignore the context. They ignore the question from Nicodemus, and they ignore the very next verse, verse 6. Jesus not only says you've got to be born of water and spirit, but then he makes a contrast between flesh and spirit. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. I think all the debates on this verse are absolutely ridiculous because I think when you read it in context, it's really clear. Just the most plain, most obvious reading of what the text is saying is Jesus is saying you need to be born physically and you need to be born spiritually. And when he talks about being born of water, you understand that water is uh, involved in childbirth. And when he talks about being born of the flesh, you understand he's talking about something physical there. And then when he talks about being born of the spirit, he's talking about being born again. He's talking about being born from above. Nicodemus is left with the the question, how does that happen? How is a person 
born from the Spirit. And before we get to the textual answer, I'd like to quote the greatest songwriter of the 20th century and say to you that the answer, my friends, is blowing in the wind. It's blowing in the wind. That's biblical, sort of. Do not marvel, verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now look, I don't know how you guys feel about Doug Hollowell's puns and bad dad jokes. This is one of them. So the next time... Doug tells you a pun and you roll your eyes at him, Doug can look at you and say, hey, it's biblical. Jesus told puns. Because he's telling a pun. He's using a pun literally in this passage. The Greek word pneuma can be translated at least four ways. Big S spirit as in Holy Spirit. Little S spirit as in your spirit. You have a body and you have a spirit. Wind or breath. How do you know which one of those is the right translation? Well, context determines what you're driving at and what the author is originally saying. And what Jesus is saying is, how is a person born of the Spirit, the pneuma? Well, it's kind of like the pneuma, the wind. And you can't see it, and you can't control it, but you can see the effects of it. In some parts of the world, you would say, you see the trees moving in the wind. We don't have a lot of trees. We have a lot of dirt. And in West Texas, when you see one of those bad boys coming your way, you know wind's coming. And it's bringing the dirt. Right? You, you can't see the wind, you can't control the wind, but you can see and you can recognize the effects of the wind blowing through West Texas. It's a great advantage to you to live in West Texas because when Jesus says, you can't see the wind, you don't control the wind, but you see the effects of it, you say, I got, I got it, I know. I understand what it's like when the wind rolls through. Jesus is saying, you can see when a sinner has been born again, when a human being has been born from above, you can't control it. You don't physically see anything happen in the moment, but the effects of it are obvious. It's like the wind. Nicodemus, look what he says in verse 9. This was a lot for Nicodemus. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Where did he start? We know. Where does he end up? I don't get it. That's a much better place to be, by the way. Just to admit to the Lord Jesus Christ, hey, I'm struggling to get this. I I don't quite get it. Much better to be in the position of the Father come to Jesus for help who says, I believe, please help my unbelief, than to come to Jesus boldly and brashly and arrogantly saying, 
we know. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus gives him a mild scolding. And he says, are you the teacher of Israel? And in the original language, the definite article is present. Jesus doesn't just say, are you a teacher? But he actually says, are you the teacher? Now, I think some people take that a little bit too far and they say, Nicodemus was like the head of First Baptist Jerusalem Seminary. I don't think that means he was like the top or the only, but it does mean he was officially recognized as a teacher in Israel. He had some official capacity to teach the law of God to God's people in Jerusalem. And Jesus acknowledges that. He says, Nicodemus, you're, you're the teacher. and You don't understand these things. Verse 12, Jesus contrasts earthly things with heavenly things. By earthly things, I think what Jesus is talking about is how salvation works in our lives here on earth. And Jesus has been describing that. He says, you've got to be born again. Well, how does that work? Well, you've got to be born of the Spirit. Hey, I'm not tracking with you. I don't get it. Well, it's kind of like the wind. You can't see it. You can't control it. But you see the effects of it. That's how salvation works for us today here on the earth in the here and now. Somebody is saved. When somebody enters the kingdom of God, it's because the Spirit of God has been at work in their life, causing them to be born again. And Jesus says, we're just talking about earthly stuff, Nicodemus. This is a bit of a, a, bit of a jab at the teacher. It's kind of like your professor saying to you in college, your senior year, hey, if you can't handle freshman math, how are you going to handle advanced calculus? If you can't handle Theology 101, Introduction to Theology, earthly stuff, what's going to happen when we move on to advanced subjects, Nicodemus? He's, he's jabbing him a little bit. He's prodding him. Then you come to verse 14. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's a simple statement, right? No big hard words. Nothing really a head scratcher as far as vocabulary goes. The grammar is pretty straightforward. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's simple. It's also remarkably complex. I just want to try to help you think about this with a sports analogy. You may have heard that there was some basketball played this last week. Anybody hear about this? You didn't think we were going to get through a sermon without me bringing up basketball, did you? It was a basketball game Monday night. The first half was atrocious. It was absolutely terrible. It was disgusting. I was depressed. I was in a funk. It was bad. I was blocking people on my phone as they texted me. I was writing people. I'll remember all of you who sent me hateful messages at halftime. Then the second half started, and it was completely different. And you watch them shoot baskets, and you watch them dribble the ball, and you watch them play defense, and you watch them run offense. And in the second half, if you were a Kansas Jayhawk fan, you said, oh, it's beautiful. They're making it look so easy. That's what good athletes do, right? They make really hard, complicated things look easy. 
That's what professional golfers do. The Masters starts this week. You watch golfers on TV and you think, I I could do that. Have you ever tried to do that? You can't do it. I think when the Olympics roll around, winter and summer, I think every Olympic event ought to have a regular person in it. Just grab someone off the street for the 100-yard dash and put them right there on lane 10 just because when you watch all the athletes, you say, well, it looks pretty easy. They're just running down the track. How hard could that be? Well, you need to put Tony Paris on lane 10 and say go, and then you go, oh, wow, that's what they're doing. Look, basketball sounds really easy until you go out here on the court and I say, okay, now dunk it. Now dribble it through your legs. Now make a three-pointer. Right? Sometimes when people are really good at something, you say, oh, that looks pretty easy. I think I could do that. I think that's... And it's not easy or simple. And what I'm saying to you is verse 14. This is simple stuff. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What I'm telling you, is that sentence blew Nicodemus' mind. Because what Jesus did in one simple sentence is he took three Old Testament stories and he mashed them into one sentence. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Here's the passages that Jesus mashed together in that verse. Numbers 21 Moses makes a bronze serpent because the people have complained and God sent the snakes to bite the people as punishment. And he built this, he made this bronze serpent, he put it on a pole and the people looked to the serpent and they were healed. So that's where we get Moses and the serpent. Then there's this phrase, lifted up. It doesn't just come from the story of Moses. It actually comes from Isaiah 52 and 53, which I feel like we've talked about a lot recently. It's a really important Old Testament passage if you want to understand the truth about Jesus. And right at the very beginning of Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant, it says that the servant would be lifted up. He will be lifted up. And then he pulls from Daniel chapter 7, this title, Son of Man. You read through the Gospels, Jesus is always calling himself the Son of Man. You get used to it, but you actually go back and read Daniel 7, and you figure out who the Son of Man is. He's the one who came before the Ancient of Days in the throne room of heaven and sat on the throne of heaven next to the Ancient of Days in a glorious vision that Daniel had. And you read John 13 or John 3 verse 14 and you realize Jesus has just taken numbers and Isaiah and Daniel and mashed them into one beautiful statement is an amazing amazing piece of biblical theology and it blew Nicodemus's mind the teacher in Israel in the end verse 15 Jesus says whoever believes in him who the Son of Man, who was lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And again, you go back to the prologue, John chapter 1. What is eternal life? How do we think about eternal life? Well, 
John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. In the Word was life. And that life was the light of men. We'll talk about light and darkness on Sunday. Eternal life from the Creator that you can receive now when you believe that lasts forever. Lasts forever. Three truths about salvation. We've sung about them. We've talked about them. Let's just summarize this passage. Number one, Jesus accomplished our salvation by dying on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. He died as a sacrifice. The amazing thing about what we're reading in John 3 is that when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about the Son of Man, we are talking about the Son of Man from Daniel 7. The one whose rightful place is the throne of the universe. And what the Bible is telling us, John chapter 1, is that the Word who was in the beginning and with God and was God and created and had life and light in himself, that word took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And he humbled himself, Paul will say in Philippians 2, to the point of death, even death on a cross where he was lifted up, the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, the one who bore our transgressions, the one who was crushed, for our iniquities, the one who was cut off from the land of the living, who died our death so that we might live and have eternal life. Jesus didn't just die to make our salvation possible. He died to accomplish the salvation of his people. Secondly, the Holy Spirit applies our salvation in the miracle of regeneration or you could call it new birth, or you could call it being born again, or you could call it being born from above. But the theological term is regeneration, again being born, a second time. John 3, from above. John 1, it's not of blood, it's not of the flesh, it's not of the will of man, it's from God. The Holy Spirit of God is the one responsible for the miracle of regeneration. I can't do it for you. I can't do it for myself. You've got to understand the biblical concept of what it means that the wages of sin is death. Death. We, we read John 6.23, the wages of sin is death, and we say, oh yeah, hell, someday. Okay, yes, hell, someday. But also, today, right now, spiritual Death. That's Paul in Ephesians 2 saying, look, before you knew Jesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We've had some church members over the last couple weeks that have had to go to the hospital, drive themselves to the ER. They've all been okay. They've all gone home. But one thing you will never see happen is a dead person drive themselves to the hospital. Sick people, yes. Bleeding people, yes. Folks who are having a heart attack, maybe. Not dead people. 
They don't do anything. People who are physically dead cannot help themselves. People who are spiritually dead cannot. They do not have the ability to help themselves. That's why John says in John 1, this being born as a child of God, it's not of the will of man, it's not of the flesh, it's not of your lineage or your descendants or who your family tree is. The only way you can be born as a child of God is to be born of God. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 2 when he says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You are following the, the course of this world, the prince of the power air, who's now at work in the sons of disobedience, but God made you alive. We were dead, and God made us alive. Jesus describes it like this in John 3. It's like the wind. You don't control it. You don't tell it where to go. In West Texas, we really wish we controlled the wind. We really wish we could say, wait, not today, stop, go over to Midland. Can't do it. You don't control the Holy Spirit of God and neither do I. I think there's a lot of weird teaching about the Holy Spirit in some churches in the United States today because we have forgotten the biblical truth that the Holy Spirit of God gives new birth, new life, regeneration to dead sinners. And if you lose the idea that it is the job of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to apply to our lives what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, you're sort of left scratching your head saying, well, what does the Holy Spirit do anyways? Like, what's He do all day? And then we invent weird stuff and we make up weird stuff and we say the Spirit does it. This is what He does. He gives life to those who are spiritually dead. He's like the wind blowing. You can't control it. You can't see Him. But you can see when He's at work in somebody's life. You can see the effects. Jesus accomplished our salvation. The Holy Spirit applies our salvation. Lastly, we receive the gift of salvation by faith. Or you could say by believing the good news about Jesus. Those mean the same thing in the New Testament. It's a fluke of history that we have two different sounding words for faith and believe. Those sound like two different words and sometimes people will try to make a distinction between those two. In the original language, it's the same Greek root. Pistuo is believe. Pistis is faith. In English, we have a mutt language and it's all sort of jumbled up and we talk about faith and believing and those sound like two different things. They're not two different things. It's the same thing. Faith is what you have. It's a noun. Believing is what you do. It's a verb. And what John says from beginning to end is when it comes to eternal life, when it comes to entering the kingdom of God, your role is to believe. It's to believe. Jesus' job is to accomplish your salvation. How? By dying as a sacrifice for your sins. The job of the Holy Spirit is to take your spiritually dead self and to wake you up and to give you new life. And what you do, what I do, is we just believe. We believe. So we're going to leave off there tonight. We'll pick up with verse 16 on Sunday morning. Let's pray together. Do it for your glory and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, stand up.